Welcome everyone. I'm glad you could be with us for today's Beach Talk. I love to help us understand every word of God that's in the Word of God. And my objective is always the same every time that I teach. It's disciples making disciples who plant churches that plant churches. Because we want to see Jesus be a beautiful grassroots movement all over the world. Now our vision for this year is to multiply from four churches in two countries to eight churches in four countries. This is a really big vision. We need you to help us. And you can do that by praying and asking God how he might use you to accomplish this. Now this year we have four trips. Uh, we have uh, a couple in June to El Salvador, uh, and then we have one in um, September to Indonesia, and one in December to Bangladesh. We'd love to have you participate. Go on one of those trips with us. You can go to oceanwater.com and click on trips, and you can get signed up there. We'd love to have you uh, come and do that with us as we use uh, ocean-based water systems that turn water in the background, uh, like the ocean behind me, into fresh, clean drinking water for people. We use these systems to plant new churches. It's very exciting. Now, today we're in Matthew 24. It says, And then when Jesus went out and departed from the temple, his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Pretty heavy stuff here. Uh, now, after, after this, Jesus would no longer talk to the religious leaders. He'd never again, again come to the temple in his earthly ministry. For After this, he departed from them and from the temple. Now, the emphasis here was on the idea, it was like a verb. It was that he was literally going away as one who would not return. You see, after Herod's work, the temple was huge. It was nearly 500 meters uh, long and 400 meters wide. Harold's plan for rebuilding the temple started in the 19 BC and was completed in AD 63. It took about 80 years. The temple was finished only seven years before it was actually destroyed. Now the second temple was was just as big. wasn't just as big. It was also beautiful. Uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, said that the temple was covered with gold plates, and when the sun shone on them, it was blinding for them to look at. There was where there was no gold. There were these huge blocks of marble that were pure white. So from far off. People could see that the t how bright the temple would shine. Now, the disciples wanted Jesus to look at the beautiful buildings, but Jesus told them to turn around and to take a good look. He was about to give several illustrations about what this meant. You see, some 40 years after Jesus said this, there was a widespread Jewish revolution against the Romans in Palestine, and there they enjoyed early success, but ultimately the Roman soldiers crushed the rebels, and in AD 70, Jerusalem was leveled, including this temple that Jesus was referencing in this teaching. So the lesson here is that buildings built by men are temporary, but what God is building in your character and in your heart is permanent. Now it's said that at the fall of Jerusalem, the last surviving Jews of the city fled to the temple because it was the strongest and most secure building in the city. You see the Roman soldiers, they surrounded it, and in fact, it's believed that one drunken soldier started a fire that soon engulfed the whole building. Now, isn't it interesting? It only takes one drunk jack wagon to ruin what a lot of people have built. <laughs> the destruction was so complete that today they have true difficulty learning exactly where the foundation of it is. So this prophecy was fulfilled literally. There was a temple and it was literally destroyed. Now, the literal fulfillment of this prophecy sets the tone for the rest of the prophecies that Jesus is going to teach in this chapter. Now, we should expect 
a literal fulfillment of those as well. There's sort of a, of, of a foundation being laid. Now look at verse 3. It says, Now when he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now did the disciples ask Jesus questions about his bold prediction concerning the destruction of the temple? For good reason. Now Jesus said the temple would be completely destroyed, which it was. It was logical that the disciples wanted to know when it would happen. Jesus will speak to this question, but only in the context of answering their next two questions. You see, the disciples probably thought they had asked only one question in their minds. When was the destruction of the temple at the end of the age? Were they connected? But really, they were asking two questions. And the second question is answered in the remainder of the chapter. So let's get into chapter 24. Jesus answers this important second question. He'll make many specific comments and predictions about the end times in the next couple of verses. Now these predictions have been the source of significant conversation amongst the followers, the disciples of Jesus for hundreds of years. So we really want today to try to be able to understand what it is that Jesus is saying here. Now, one reason why prophecy sometimes seems vague or imprecise is because God wants every age and all of his disciples, regardless of when they live, to live with the ambiguity that he might return, that he might come back, yes, even in their lifetime, even now in our lifetime. You see, some interpretations are different. We know that Jesus is coming again, so we gotta be ready for that. We need to line up our lives for that. Now look at verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and I will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, so that you are not troubled, for all these things they must come to pass. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, there will be pestilences like diseases there'll be earthquakes in various places and these are the beginning of the sorrows sounds very much like today now Jesus warned the disciples that many would be deceived as they anticipated when he was going to come back now the kind of things that Jesus mentions in this section are not the things that mark the specific signs of the end they're like things like false messiahs wars rumors of wars earthquakes it certainly marked history since Jesus's resurrection but we're not specific signs of the end. In fact, Jesus says catastrophes will happen, but these will not signal the end. Now, in the midst of any great war or great famine or any great earthquake, it is natural to believe that the world is coming to an end. But Jesus said there is a far more specific sign that would indicate his return. And he describes this later in the chapter. Though none of these events are the specific sign of the end, collectively, they are a sign. Now, when Jesus described these calamities as the beginning of sorrows, he literally called them the beginnings of labor pains. Just as it is true with labor pains, we should expect that the things mentioned, wars and famines and earthquakes and so on, would become more frequent and more intense before the return of Jesus, without any of them being the specific sign of the end. Makes sense. Now, look at verse 9. It says, Then they will deliver you up for trials and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached 
in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Let me unpack this here. Now, in this period after Jesus ascends to heaven and before he comes again, his disciples should expect to be persecuted. This may make his followers believe the end is near, but this is also not the specific sign of his return. Now, in the period after Jesus ascends to heaven and before he comes again, the, dis the disciples of Jesus will see many false prophets. Remember this, and even their success. But these are not the specific signs of his return. Now, in the period after Jesus ascends to heaven and before he comes again, his disciples, you and I, should expect to see society become worse and worse. But this also is not a specific sign of his return. You see, Jesus also promised that before the end, the gospel would go out to the whole world. Their persecution, false prophets in general, downgrade of society would not prevent the spread of the good news of the gospel. Now look at verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, essentially, the abomination of desolation speaks of the ultimate desecration of a Jewish temple, the establishment of an idolatrous image in the holy place itself, which inevitably results in God's judgment. It is the abomination that brings desolation. Now, Jesus described a gross form of idolatry, standing in a holy place, that brings with it great destruction. Now, the normal meaning of holy place is hagios topos, a literally the temple complex. By the time the Romans had actually desecrated the temple in AD 70, it was too late for anyone in the city to flee. Yet, when we understand the importance of what is said about this event, the abomination of desolation, we must give priority to this event even more than the easiest interpretation of it, because it's sort of a little bit hard to get at. Now, it is the critical sign mentioned in Matthew 24. It is the warning to flee that's mentioned in this chapter, so it's a critical warning. It is also a sign of the consummation of all things, according to the Old Testament. It is also the sign that's foreshadowed by Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel chapter 11. There's a lot happening in this chapter. It is the precise marker of the days to the end, according to Daniel 12, and it is the revelation of the, of the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians. So let's try to understand this and get all this. It's also the image of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. So taking these passages in their most plain meaning, the abomination of desolation cannot be the Roman armies or the signs that they marched under. It can't be totalitarian governments or any other conjecture. The abomination of desolation is some kind of antichrist set up in an actual temple that is the decisive sign for the end. That means that for the most part, Jesus in Matthew 24 haven't been fulfilled. So we should study them and learn from them. It was almost as if Jesus was saying, don't miss, don't miss this. Uh, if you don't understand this, you won't understand a lot of things. And that's exactly the error of many who, with good intentions, misunderstand the plain meaning of the abomination of desolation. So Jesus wants us to understand this. Now look at verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to mountains. Let him who is on the housetop, housetop not go down and take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not get back to his clothes. But woe to those who were pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. 
So, in light of the broader context of this chapter, these words of Jesus should be understood as having primary application to those who see the abomination of desolation in the very last days during the Great Tribulation, events that have yet to happen. So Jesus told his disciples about the abomination of desolation, which is set up by the Antichrist in the middle of the Great Tribulation and warned them of his coming destruction of the Great Tribulation. Some, some Christians or disciples believe that all Christians will go through this. I don't believe that. Uh, to them, it seems evident. Why would Jesus say uh, that, that these things to his disciples if all of his disciples would not experience them? So the answer is simple. We know from this passage and other passages that God will remove his church, his followers, from the great fury of the great tribulation, catching them away to meet Jesus. Yet this information is valuable for the followers of Jesus so they can understand his plan for the future, how history unfolds right in front of us. And that this information is valuable for those who would become his disciples after the great tribulation, after the church is gone. Now look at verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as not happened since the beginning of the world. Pretty heavy. Nor will ever happen. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there is the Christ... Don't believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. So I've told you beforehand, therefore, if I say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out there. Or look, he's, he's in the inner room, don't go there. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So Jesus said that this will be the most awful time in all of human history. When we think of the terrible wars and plagues and famines and genocide history is seen, this is a sobering statement. When God pours out his wrath on a God-rejecting world, it will be a truly great tribulation. Now this reminds us that this great tribulation, this time of catastrophe, that hasn't been since the beginning of the world until now, has not yet been fulfilled. No one should be deceived about the nature of Jesus' coming. It would not be secret or private, but as plain as lightning that flashes across the sky. But in the midst of such tribulation, there will be temptation to look for false messiahs and false Christs and false prophets because people will want deliverance, but Jesus says they're false. So we have to pay attention to this. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So what's happening here? Well, the sun will turn dark. The moon will not give its light. So a lot of prophetic passages describe the cosmic disturbances that will precede the second coming of Jesus. The word Simeon is a regular word for the arrival of a governor who entered into his province for the coming of a king to his subjects. It regularly describes a coming in authority 
and power. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Look at verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves. And you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So learn this parable from the fig tree. The fig tree has a regular pattern. The leaves appear and then the summer follows. When you see the leaves, you know that summer is near. So what, what is Jesus trying to say to us? Well, the fig tree was a common fruit in Israel. It is mentioned many times in the Old Testament, especially as a description of the abundance of the land. So it seems that Jesus' reference here is not so much on the figness of the fig tree, but on the way that the fig tree follows reliable growth cycles related to the seasons. This is especially evident when this passage is compared with Luke 21. Now look at the fig tree and all of the trees. When, there are, when they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So Jesus is saying again, pay attention to the signs. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. So when a fig tree buds, there's an, there's an inevitable result. Summer is near and fruit is coming. In the same way, when these signs are seen, the coming of Jesus in his glory with his church to this world will inevitably follow. So we're supposed to study them and understand them. Now up to this point, Jesus has given an important outline for end times events. A few things. There will arise catastrophes and persecutions, but those in themselves are not the sign of the end. There will arise a, a pivotal sign, the abomination of desolation. Um, when the abomination of desolation appears, there are warnings to Israel to flee after the abomination. Now on the heels of the abomination of desolation comes great tribulation and cosmic disturbances. So in culmination, Jesus Christ will return in glory to the earth. So look at verse 36. But on that day, an hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but only my Father. Now, Jesus refers back to the original question of Matthew 24, verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming? His answer is somewhat unexpected, saying that the day and the hour nobody knows, but only the Father. Now, Jesus claimed that his knowledge was reserved for his Father only if Jesus himself, at least during his earthly ministry, did not know the day and hour. It emphasizes the foolishness of anybody later on making predictions about when this is going to happen. So verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man, for in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So. Jesus explained what he meant by the days of Noah. It means that life centered around normal things, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, life will be business as usual, perhaps even very sinful, but usual. Now those in the days of Noah were warned and judgment eventually came, but those who had ignored the warnings, it came suddenly and unexpectedly. 
Now, how can Jesus come to a business-as-usual world and a world experiencing the worst calamities ever seen on earth? The difference is in expectations. Now, verse 40, then these the two will be in one field, one will be taken to the other, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Now, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. So Jesus here pointed to curious disappearance, disappearances to a catching away of some at the coming of the Son of Man it was described in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, since the day and hour of this coming are unknowable, Jesus' followers must be on constant guard for his coming. We must be ready for it. Jesus is coming in an hour that you do not expect. We must not escape the emphasis. We must be ready because his coming will come without warning. Now, Jesus follows with a few parables to drive home this point. Now, look at verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has made rule over his household to give them food in due season? Now blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. Now Jesus told us that we must carry on with diligence while the Lord is gone. We must be that faithful and wise servant who takes care of his master's business while the master is away. So Jesus also promised that we will be rewarded for our diligence. The servants serve the master, but the master knows how to take care of and reward the servants. Now, lastly in verse 48, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and that he is not aware of and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus warns us of the attitude which says, my master is delaying his coming. No, we must live in constant anticipation of Jesus's return. And that means being about our business for him right now. Now the most dangerous lie isn't that there is no God, or that there's no hell, but the most dangerous lie is that there is no hurry. It is no small thing to say Jesus is not coming today or for several years because our system of prophecy demands it. We need to be ready for the imminent return of our Lord Jesus. Now the evil servant who was not ready for the master's return sinned in at least three different ways. Well, one, he was not about the business of his master that his master left for him. Two, he fought with and mistreated his fellow servants. And then lastly, he gave himself to the pleasures of the world instead of serving his master. So this emphasis on constant readiness is a challenge for the disciples and followers of Jesus today. It can be said that many disciples were not ready in the same three ways. Now, we should be greatly impressed by the urgency of Jesus' appeal. Now, the faithful and wise servant was rewarded, but so was the evil servant. He was rewarded for his wickedness, and he would have the portion with the hypocrites that he deserved. 
it says here that they to cut him in two now the probable probable meaning is will cut him in two so to speak with the whip or thrash him as like a as um, unmercifully it's a strong word selected to to sympathize with the master's uh, rage now this wraps up our time in Matthew 24 there was a lot in this chapter and um, I want you to be asking you know what was one thing that God was talking to me about today now we want to talk to God about that one thing and it's called prayer prayer is an opportunity to realign with God to reset our lives back to what Jesus is calling us to do now would you do that right now would you just say God thank you for speaking to me today Help me to follow through on that nugget that you dropped in my heart. Give me a fresh start. Help me to realign with you. Help me to follow you in all of my thoughts, in all of my actions, in all of my motives with my entire life. And I ask you to help me do this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last thing we want to do today is the Bible teaches us to give as part of our worship. And our, the, the giving of our finances reflects the values that we have. This has been practiced for thousands of years, the disciples of Jesus. The Bible teaches this concept of giving the first fruits of your income. We call that tithing or a tenth. And that's what we teach. Now, we're a church planting church, so we want you to give to the best of your ability. We want to take everything that you give and we want to multiply it in our church and through our church to other churches and also to help people get their water from the ocean. So I trust that God will speak to you today about that and that you'll do whatever he does and you'll ask God to give you the strength. If you're wondering how to do that, you can go on our website, go to oceanwater.com and click on give and just follow through with, with whatever God puts on your heart. I love you. I'm glad I get to be your pastor and I hope you have a beautiful day. Thanks so much.